If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. When I was in graduate school, one of my counseling classes required us to do what's called a genogram of our own family. If you don't know what a genogram is, you're in good company because neither did I uh, when I was taking the class. So uh, a genogram is, is uh, think, think a family tree, but much more detailed, uh, much more detailed. It, it, is, it is more of a, actually a, uh, a map of, of a family, of the descendants of the family, of the structure, who married who, of course, uh, patterns, uh, some of the, the, the events that happened, uh, tragic events or uh, marital problems or uh, health problems, uh, whatever. It, it's mapping out all these kind of uh, patterns in the life of a family. And it's used in, in counseling in order to better understand or to interpret uh, the family history, uh, the, the family issues that, that might be present uh, at the moment. Um, and it helps better understand why things might be the way they are currently. Um, it's, it's actually quite interesting. I had to do my own, and, and there's some things that I learned about, about my family, of course, as well. Uh, this isn't to, to excuse uh, the way things are, uh, blaming it on our past, but it is to explain it. It is to help understand, and, and it's, it's a map uh, to be interpreted in order for us to understand our family and the impact on it. And though not exactly a, a genogram, a Genesis does contain several genealogies. Uh, these genealogies record uh, the family lineage uh, beginning at creation with Adam. And uh, these, are, are, these not only contain family descendants, which we, we, we see, but in some cases it gives us insight into some significant factors that impact the family in the future. So in our passage this morning, we will find two more genealogies, which I'm sure you are so excited. So please, contain your enthusiasm uh, right now. Seriously, settle down. We are a Baptist church. We have a reputation to uphold. No, no cheering here. Um, all, all jokes aside, I do, I do want you um, to invite you to, to stick, stick with me uh, through this. Um, not to check out because what, what we're going to read for the most part is a list of names. Okay, so I'm, I'm giving you the, the, the bad part early. It's a, it's a list of names. It's, it's more branches in this you know, giant family tree. Um, but believe it or not, there is actually more here uh, than just names for us to consider. One of the issues that we deal with when we read the Bible uh, is that we want the Bible to be all about us. And so we come to a passage like this, and we would say, there's, there's no, listen, uh, verses uh, 10 through 26 is never going to be on a coffee cup, Okay. <laughs> You, you go to your, your grandma's house, she's never going to have any of these verses on a coffee cup, right? It's not going to be stitched into a pillow on a, on a bed. It's not happening, okay? These aren't the verses, right? Nobody's life verse is going to be contained in verses 10 through 26 today, okay? Um, so sometimes we read, those, we read verses like that and we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't need that. Give me something I can take with me today. Give, give me something for me, 
right? We want the Bible to be about me. Well, here's a memo. The Bible is not primarily about you. The Bible is primarily about God. And so what we want to do as a reader is to understand what the Bible tells us about God. And before we ever make application to ourselves, what we want to understand is what does the Bible mean to the people it was originally written to? Too often we jump to what does this mean to me? That's not the primary question. That's not the question that Moses is is writing to, to help us with. It's not the question that any of the writers actually are writing to help us with, what it means to me. It's what does it mean to God? What does it teach us about God? The genealogy uh, here in chapter 11 uh, is, is another one, as we said. There, there was one we looked at back in chapter 10, and there were some 70 names in that genealogy. That genealogy is re- referred to as the table of nations for the 70 names or nations that are listed there. Here in chapter 11, we have another table, which could be called a table of salvation or the table of salvation, and it serves to bridge Uh, bridge us from from Shem, the son of Noah, all the way to Abram, the son of Terah. It takes us from the flood, Noah's day, to God's appointed leader of his new people, Abram. It takes us uh, to salvation, right? From whom salvation for all would come. That was through the line of Abram. So this passage divides into two sections. Most of your Bibles probably have have some sort of a a division uh, there between verses uh, 26 and 27. You see a break. uh, You may see a break. So there's two sections. Uh, First is the descendants of Shem to Terah, and then from Terah to Abraham, or Abram and and his sons. Uh, So we start with verse 10 in chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 8. And it reads like this, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered, uh, we'll stop right there. These are the generations of, these are the generations of, we've seen that phrase uh, multiple times already. We're going to see it more times as we go. It's It's a phrase repeated 11 times in the book of Genesis. And it marks a new section. It marks a new section of scripture every time we, we see that. Uh, and so we got a new section here in verse 10. That's what it's pointing us to. Shem, we'll remember, is, is this, one of the sons of Noah. And Noah, we can remember from chapter 5, is from the line of Seth, who is the son of Adam, right? And so as we look at this, this genealogy, we, we can understand that this genealogy is a continuation of previous genealogies all the way back to Adam uh, pre-flood. Uh, verse chapter 11 is recording the continued line of the seed of the woman. Back in chapter 3, turn there with me, chapter 3, verse 15. If you've been with us, you know that this is an important passage that we keep referring back to because it, it's keeping us grounded to the, the point of all of this. This is after the fall in the garden, and God is giving out judgments. And in verse 15, verse 14, he he judges the serpent. And then he says this in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise, excuse me, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So this is pointing us forward to the time when Satan would be crushed. Crushed by who? The, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, the child from whom the woman would come. And so Genesis is pointing us to that. All these genealogies are tracing for us how this seed, how this offspring, how this son, this child would be preserved. And so every time we see a genealogy, it's Moses' um, attempt at pointing us to how God is preserving his promise. In a sense, the genealogy is connecting here to the past and to the future. It's pointing us to, back to, to the promise, and it's pointing us forward to Abraham, who would be part of leading God's people. Remember, we must remember the purpose here. The purpose, in part, is to trace the line of the offspring. Chapter 11 here, verses 10 and following, is evidence that God's people, to God's people, that God had and continues to, would continue to, preserve the seed of the woman. What we're seeing here is God's faithfulness to do what he had promised. That's what we're seeing. And so we read, keep reading with me in verse 10. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshed, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshed, Arpachshed, 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshed had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshed lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sergu, Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug. 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Serug had, 30 year, had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram and Nahor and Herod. We made it. Back in chapter 10, we see another genealogy of Shem, a partial genealogy of Shem. Chapter 11 here is a, is a uh, another genealogy. It's actually a longer, in some ways it's a longer genealogy, but it is more distinct. It is directing um, us to the offspring of Shem that would lead to Abram, specifically to Abram. In chapter 10, we don't get to Abram. Here, Moses points us to how from Shem we get to Abraham. That's the point of, of the text um, here. We also see a, a dramatic decline in the lifespan versus the pre-flood era. 
Back in chapter five, we read about all these people and we had that repeated refrain at the end of every time, and he died, remember that? These were people who were living 900 plus years. We had people like Enosh, we had people like Methuselah and Seth and even Adam. All of them were living you know, very long lives. And now here, post-flood, the lifespan starts to fall dramatically. In the beginning of this genealogy, we see Shem is living 600 years, which sounds like a really long time to us, but that's 300 years less than those guys were living back in chapter 5. And we see the descent just continues. The decline continues to where at the end here, uh, Nahor is, is living 145 years. 148 years, sorry, verses 24 and 25. So clearly something has changed, right? That, that's notable that the lifespan has changed and, and, and most obvious uh, that the world's been destroyed and has been re remade and things are different now. Even cosmologically, things are different. Uh, things are different with, with how, how, how the world even is. Um, we also see here in all of this that God is in control right? Uh, through genealogies like this, we can see not just a list of names, but also that God is sovereign over all human history and over each family, right? Each name here represents a person, it represents a person who was appointed by God to live and to be part of that family, Specifically that family. There, there's no coincidences here. There's no accidents. All the details, all, all the details, all the people were determined by God. And what's more is that the God is sovereign over all people and over all family lines. So, so just as um, these generations here in chapter 11 were predestined to the families they were involved in, so too are, are you and I predestined to the families that we are in. God appointed it. It may not be the family that you, you had wanted, but yet God is sovereign over those things. You may be growing up in a family or have grown up in a family that doesn't even know the Lord. You can say, how, how could that be God's will for me to grow up in a family that doesn't know the Lord? Well, in just a few minutes, we're gonna find out there's a man named Abraham who grew up in a family who did not know the Lord. And God had a great plan for him, as we will see in just a few moments. For reasons unknown to us, God sovereignly appoints our days in, in when we live, in, in where we live. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says it this way, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God determined when you were going to live and where you were going to live. Here, this genealogy, a genealogy of all things can remind us that God is sovereign over our lives, over our families, and has a divine plan. And if that's true, then that means you can trust him. That means he is, he is trustable. Well, at this point in the text, Moses has completed the, the record of what could be called uh, primeval or ancient history. Up to this point, getting us to Abraham, this is all ancient history, and we see a change happen here in verse 20, 27, as, as uh, Moses now begins uh, to, to change a little bit of the way he is writing. Uh, Moses is moving the readers from, from the old world to now the world of what we call the patriarchs of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. It is from here 
that the, the text moves a focus. Up till now, in chapters 11, the focus is on humanity. It's God's work in the world. Now, we're seeing him focusing on a single family, Abraham's family, the Hebrews, the Israelites, God's chosen people. The text moves from God's concern for the whole world to his chosen people, Israel. And we see that begin to take shape in verses 27 through 32. Look at verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham, and Abram, excuse me, and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarah, Sarai was barren. She had no child. We'll stop there. Now, this is, uh, gives us a description of Terah and his family. Uh, there is uh, much that could be said here about Terah and his family. Uh, by what we see here, we find out that he has three sons. Uh, the first son dies, has children, but had, dies. Uh, the second son uh, married, uh, this is Nahor, is not the Nahor from earlier there. This is a different Nahor. Uh, Nahor married his niece, would have been Haran's, uh, Haran's daughter, Milcah. And then the other person here, that's Abram, finds out he marries a girl named Sarai, who if we don't, he doesn't tell us this here, but on the whole of the, the story, we find out that Sarai is actually his half-sister. Okay? And that's why in chapter 20, he says uh, to Abimelech, this is my sister, it's not my wife, to try to uh, protect himself. So, <clears throat> we have quite a family going here, don't we? Uh, we, have, we have inbred things happening. Uh, we have uh, illusions of some, some uh, pagan worship, we'll get to in just a second. But verse 30 tells us that Sarai was, was barren. And if you, again, if we know the story of Abraham and Sarah, we'll know that that's actually a really important detail. It's a really important detail, not just because uh, of the story that comes, but because of Abraham's faith. Uh, when Abraham was given righteousness from God, it's given by faith in what? In God's promise that he would bear a son through Sarah, who was barren. And so from early on, Moses is stressing to us that there is a massive problem there's a massive problem uh, for Abram and Sarah in that she is barren. Being barren was a problem specifically to the promise of God. We'll look at that in the, the chapters to come. Um, Sarai, uh, is, her, her name means my princess. And it's said that this name comes from another language that refers to the moon goddess, which may then indicate to us something about Sarai's family. Sarai may have been from a family that was a pagan family. We also find out where they were in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans is, or is known, or was known, I should say, as an idolatrous city. 
Not a godless, a godless city, not, not a, a city that follows God at all. Actually, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we find more about Terah. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, so he's looking back to, to this time, so this is Joshua writing years and years later, looking back, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Nahor was an idolater. They served other gods. They. The implication could be there that that Nahor and Abraham and Terah all served other gods. We don't know for certain, but it seems very clear that, that Terah was an idolater. And he served other gods. He served pagan gods. So Abram was raised in idolatrous, in an idolatrous family. Right? Sarah, here presumably, Sarai was presumably raised in an in a, uh, idolatrous family as well, who worshipped the moon. Now, this family was not quite the poster family, right, for, for virtue and for godliness. Uh, the family that you would want to breed out a new nation, Right? This isn't, these aren't the people that you think you would pick, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're on the, the, uh, the dodgeball uh, field and you're doing picks back and forth, they're not going to be the first picks for most of us, right? We would find lots of reasons why these people might not be the people who God would choose in order to do that. And yet, what does that tell us about God? That God sees something that you don't see. God sees something that I don't see. And the reasons why God does what he does are reasons that maybe God only knows, we find out that they did not follow Yahweh, but God still had a plan. Look at verse 31. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife, and went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to, up to the land of Canaan. We have a little map here just to give us a description of where we're at. So down in the bottom right corner is Ur, where they were. Uh, you see Haran there, and then um, Canaan. So they took a, uh, uh, um, an approach uh, kind of out of the way, around, around the barn, to, to get to Haran, or excuse me, get to Canaan. But as they went, um, they, went to, they went first to Haran um, and not Canaan. But the question comes, why did they go at all? They're an idolatrous family. Why would they even leave? What, 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 what provoked them to even go? Now, you might quickly go to Abraham, but, but why would the whole family go? Why, why would this happen? Well, turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you can go to page 914. 914, Acts chapter 7. And Stephen is writing here. And Stephen is giving us a, a history of the Jewish people. And he starts back to Abraham. He's actually giving it to the religious leaders at that time and to express to them that actually the Judaism points to Jesus. That's kind of his point. But, but here he starts with Abraham. And he starts looking at verse 2. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The, the, the God of glory. He's not talking about Christians when he says brothers and fathers. He's talking about fellow Jews here and elders. Now, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, so this is when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, go out from your land 
and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. And he went from the, from, uh, from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from, this, there, from there into this land in which you are now living, Canaan. So why did he go? Why did he go? He went because God appeared to him and called him to go. That's why he went. He didn't go because he, he wanted to go on a vacation. He didn't go because he wanted to see the sights. They were plenty content in the Ur of Chaldeans. It was, it was the, the largest city in, that, in Mesopotamia. It was an idolatrous city. They were fine. They, they weren't dissatisfied with the area. What happened was God appeared to him. This is called a theophany. When, when God f- appears to man. And when God appears, there, there are no more questions. There no, there's, no, there's no resistance. God says, you're going to go. And what did they do? They packed up and they left. When God appears, we say yes. We don't say what. We don't say maybe. We say yes. And that's exactly what they did. They packed up their family and off they went. But they didn't make it all the way there, did they? They settled in Haran. We'll get there in just a moment. But but what we see as they leave is we're seeing a demonstration of Abram's faith. It's early. It's early in the the story of Abraham. It's early in his growth, in his process. But we see signs of faith and signs of obedience. One writer says Abram's obedience is an outward evidence of his inward faith. And here at this point, there's at least the beginning of faith. Listen, your obedience, my obedience is the evidence of faith. You, you want to you demonstrate faith? How, how do you live by faith? Obey God. Obey God's word. How do I know what God has said? Read God's word. We, we ought to be more concerned about what God has revealed in his word than what subjectively we may not know. Some of us want to know what car to buy, what job to have, what house to buy. Listen, if, if we are in obedience to what God has already revealed in his word, we'll be in the place to make those decisions with wisdom and his guidance. We need to know what God has said. And when we know what God has said, that we act in obedience. That is what it looks like to walk by faith. This faith of Abraham would only grow, we know, into fullness. We'll see that in chapter 15. But back to verse 31. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So instead of going to Canaan, they stop in Haran. He was not called to go to Haran. He was called to go to Canaan. So why did they stop? We're not told why they stopped. There could be a few ideas here, conjecture all around, but a few ideas. Abram, Abram may have uh, not been all the way uh, to a place of trusting God fully. He may have not all the, been all the way there with his faith. And though he obeyed in the sense that he left, Maybe he, he, he stuttered here in, in Herod. Maybe he, he didn't make it all the way. And here's, here's the truth, though. Uh, the call of God in your life and in mine is a process. Now, some people overnight get it, right? The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Boom, got it, right? Not all of us have that experience. For some of us, it is progressive. Some of us, it is a movement at a time a step at a time until we come to fully embrace what God has called. Maybe that's what's happening here for Abraham, which God, what God began, God finished. That's true for you too. Philippians chapter one, verse six, what God has begun, he will complete. Secondly, or additionally, we could understand that Terah, the father of Abraham, may have not wanted to go to Canaan. 
he got to Herod, and we know something about Herod. Herod is the second most idolatrous city in Mesopotamia. <laughs> so possibly, he got to Herod and said, this looks familiar. <laughs> I'm comfortable here. I, I, we don't need to go any further. I'm good. I'm good with this. Whatever this is, I'm good with it. And there they settled. Maybe Abram obliged his father out of respect, or maybe Abraham as well wanted to stay. We don't know, but we do know that after Terah died, Abram moved to Canaan. But thirdly, um, as the most idolatrous city, I guess we just said that, it, it could have been just that. He may have saw what he wanted and settled there instead of going on. In any event, what we find in verse 32 is that the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. From all that we know, Terah was an idolatrous, an, an, an idol worshiper, and he died in his sins at Haran. He died as, as an enemy of God. He died in opposition to and without God. And Terah is a cautionary tale about the effect of idols in our life. The effect of idols that, that replace or try to rival God, who take us captive and destroy our soul. We all worship something. You might say, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Yet yeah, you worship something. You may say, well, I don't even believe in God. You worship something. We all worship something. We all ascribe worth to something. We all say something is the most important or someone is the most important thing in our life. The great question is, who do you worship? And here, by the, the information that we have about Terah, Terah did not worship Yahweh. And what we can then conclude is that, that Terah did not go to be with God when he died. He was separated from God forever and will be separated from God in the lake of fire. Maybe you don't believe in God today or maybe you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation. But you have hope. We all put our hope in something. Tara's hope was misplaced. Tara believed in gods, small g. Tara believed in idols, and he worshiped those things. And where did that get him? The invitation for you today is to see God as the only one who is worthy of your worship. That maybe God would turn the lights on for, for you as he turned the lights on for many of us to see him as the holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the vision of God, he recognizes his sin and the holiness of God. That's what we all need. We all need a vision of God. We don't need a dream. We can read the Bible. The Bible gives to us that vision. The Bible describes to us that very thing of who God is in our need for him. And because he is holy, that means that we are not. We, we are not. We are sinners, enemies of God, separated from him. And yet there's salvation that is made available. These genealogies are a bridge from Shem to Abraham, as we said before, and Abraham's descendants. But the, the story of the descendants of Shem doesn't stop here, right? It doesn't stop in chapter 12, doesn't stop, stop in chapter 15, it continues. The, the seed of the woman continued. More and more descendants were had, ultimately until Jesus came. In Luke chapter 3, we find another genealogy. is the genealogy of Jesus himself. And as you read that genealogy, you can see how it's from the, the line of Joseph, the father, 
comes all the way back through who? The descendants of Shem. And you see some of these very same names that we just read here in chapter 11 in Luke chapter 3. What is it telling us? It's telling us that Jesus is the ultimate seed. Jesus is the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. This all points then to the faithfulness of God. As one writer says, this passage records the faithfulness of God to watch over his people and fulfill his promises. And the same God who made those promises and fulfilled those promises makes promises to us as well in the scriptures. We need to know what those promises are for us and what promises are for other people. But God does, in fact, keep his promises. God promised a redeemer. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 15. And the redeemer has come. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He promises forgiveness of sins through Christ. He promises life eternal, John 3, 16. He promises his abiding presence for those who are his, Matthew 28, 20, Psalm chapter 23, verse 4. He promises grace. He promises us peace. He promises to come again. He promises to receive us to himself, that is, his people. He promises to renew and restore all things one day. And that is yet to come. God is a promise keeper. As we read this chapter full of names, what we should see is how God is keeping his promise from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is faithful to his word. You can trust him today. You can trust him today. He is faithful. He, uh, the Apostle Paul writes it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful today that you have been faithful to your word, to your people. And as we read these uh, verses in the Old Testament directed at the, the chosen people of Israel. We see how you were faithful to preserve your promise of the seed. And yet that promise, the promise of the Redeemer, is not only for Israel. In fact, the Redeemer has come not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. He's come for all, that all may be saved who come to him in repentance, and in faith. Now, these words remind us of your sovereignty, of your control, of your faithfulness, of your promise-keeping. And may we leave here today with great confidence in our great God. You are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our worship. And to you we give it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our God, you are